Before we get into the podcast, I'd just like to say to all my listeners, I really appreciate the support so far. It's been immense and the podcast is going really well. The one thing I do ask, can you please, please, if you enjoy the show, hit the follow button on Spotify and Apple. You do not know how much that helps the podcast grow. If you enjoy the content, I've added a link if you fancy putting the price of a coffee towards the podcast just to help with the running costs. Absolutely no obligation to do so. But if you feel you want to make a little contribution, you can make a one-off payment through the link. But again, as I said, this isn't about the money for me, but it does help with the running costs. But absolutely no obligation to do so. Now, I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's episode of Spud Talks Football, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Glenn from the Obstructed View podcast, and he's here to tell us a little bit about all that's going on with Everton at the moment. Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Hi, Mark. Um, really appreciate you having me on and uh, letting me have a little talk about Everton on your uh, your podcast. I listened to your Southampton episode this morning, and uh, it was fantastic, so I'm looking forward to getting into it a little bit with you. No, it's a pleasure to have you on, uh, Glenn, because um, as you can see by the format of the podcast, I kind of like to get a bit of variety into it and kind of get people on from different clubs and various backgrounds and stuff. So the what's going on with Everton is so kind of prevalent at the moment. I was I was really, really interested in getting someone on from Everton. And uh, I've, I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast and there was one episode there that, um, that you, you done a really good chat about it. And that's when I got in touch with you. I thought it was really good and you covered a lot in it. And yeah, and then, then obviously you, you got in touch with me about doing the voice note and stuff. So, no, I'm, it's re- you're someone I've wanted to have on now for a while. So I really appreciate you taking your time, you know. Yeah, I think also it's probably quite a good uh, a good moment to speak about this, actually, because we did sort of speak maybe about a week and a half ago about doing this. But things have changed quite a bit um, in the sort of last sort of week or so as well. So. Is it'll probably be a bit of a different angle now, a little bit with we've sort of been through the information, appeals have gone in and things, so we'll we'll get onto it all. But it's probably quite a good time to look at it now, actually. Yeah, no, it's good because that's the kind of insight we're kind of looking for. Because obviously you'd you, you'd be a lot closer to what's going on than I am, you know. So it's fantastic now to have you on here. But but Glenn, before we go down that kind of road, like I do with this with all my guests, just because I have listeners in Australia, England, Ireland, you know. So just the kind yes. of. Just to give, I like to give the listeners a bit of an idea who who they're who they're listening to chatting. So, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a run about your background, where you're from, where you grew up, how you kind of got into football in the first place and stuff? Yeah, so I'm actually um, I'm a railway worker and I live in South Yorkshire at the moment. So I don't actually live in Merseyside, but my background is I was born in North Wales uh, to a Welsh family, um, and you'll probably know being Irish, um, a lot of Welsh and Irish people used to work in Liverpool over the years, so. Yeah. My dad was actually a scouser. He was brought up in Liverpool. My, my um, father is from Bootle as well. <clears throat> yeah, so I'm Welsh, and my dad uh, was Welsh, and he worked in Liverpool. Well, he was he was born in Wales because of the war, but he actually lived his first twenty years of his life in Liverpool. So he became a scouser, um, and I think with the diaspora in in Liverpool and, and the surrounding area, especially North Wales, um, Ireland. It's, it's almost like a linked area in, in a way. So I grew up the first 15 years kind of in between Liverpool and North Wales. Um, and I was born born an Evertonian, really, you know, uh, baby kits, Everton um, games in the 90s, going to Goodison Park as a little lad with scarves on and woolly hats and 
still going to see him to this day. You know, it's just um, it's just been with me from birth, to be honest. Um, and it's quite it's quite amusing now because a lot of people where we live in South Yorkshire are, are Liverpool fans, so um, it, oh, really? it's really kind of yeah. Um, or Manchester United tends to be a lot. Um, even with these sort of big clubs now, which have come through like Chelsea and, and Man City, I don't think youngsters take that kind of one club attitude anymore as much. You know, with them no, doing well, yeah, it's changed yeah. a lot. Um, just, so just yeah, on. I, <clears throat> go on. Yeah. No, sorry, I was just going to say on that. There was an interesting point there because I I, I was actually working with a scouser over here. He was working on the same yeah. site as me, and I was mad, mad scouser, like mad for Everton. Like you know, what I mean, you can when he talks about yeah. the club, you can hear the passion. But he lives in Australia, you know, and he was saying, oh, that, yeah. he was saying that his son, his son is growing up over here, but all his sons friends are mad Man City fans so he's really going towards Man City because they're the club getting the success you know and he was like yeah, I'm yeah. so determined you know because I'm going to do to him my father done for me you know so he said uh, I always I always thought right I leave him off at the moment but when we finally get back home for a trip once I take him to Goodison Park or whatever you know it'll grip him and yeah. that'll be the end of it and he said we took him back and it was an ill oil game he said and uh for the eight-year-old, and he said, eventually I just gave in and bought him a Man City jersey in Australia so, so he could fit in with his friends. But that's you're, you're 100% right. It's, it's, it's different now, you know. They're the kind of, and, and you, as you said there, a lot of the South Yorkshire people are uh, Man United fans where I grew up as well. It was all Man United fans I grew up with, you know. Just, yeah, so, yeah. So, just because they were what's winning and stuff, and that's probably what's happening with Man City now as well, you know. Yeah, well, I, I'm a season ticket holder. I go to as many away games as I can get to. Um, so it doesn't stop me going to the games or anything like that. Um, I'm over in Liverpool as much as I'm out in these parts, to be honest. I'm, I'm in Liverpool on Thursday, staying over at the weekend. So yeah. I, I spend a lot of time over there. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I think we've got a good handle on on the club and, and how people feel, especially, you know. <clears throat> um, do, does it take you long to drive from Yorkshire to Merseyside? Yeah, so I think it takes over around about two hours generally. Um, traffic, you can maybe look at two and a half hours. Sometimes you can be a bit less, you know, one, an hour 50 or something. But um, it is it is a fair sort of drive in the UK. I know where, where you live over in Australia, that'll be nothing, um, an hour, an hour, two hours. But um, it's just in the UK, the traffic system's not great. So you can, you get one small accident here and it's kind of, you don't move, do you? So, um, Same with Ireland, man. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, it, we we're over there all the time, so it's brilliant. Um, and I've still got lots of connections in North Wales as well, and um, it's quite a big link between Everton, and North Wales, and Everton and Ireland, especially with Seamus Coleman, um, which I'm sure you've you've probably gathered over the years. Yeah, that's uh, as I was saying there. Um, my I they got I'm an Aston Villa fan like uh, my whole yeah. life. But I grew up in a household where all my dad and his side of the family, my dad's from Bootle in Liverpool. My dad, so I grew up with yeah. half a family of Scousers, so. All my dad's side of the family are from Liverpool and they're all mad Evertonians before he passed away. And then my mother's from Ireland, so all her brothers and all that, they're all mad Liverpool fans. So I kind of grew up in a household yeah. where all my dad's side of the family were Everton, all my mom's side of the family were Liverpool. So I, I, I often get asked, how did I end up following Aston Villa? And I don't, I don't really know. I think it was because there was a lot of Irish playing <laughs> Villa at the time. And I, yeah. I always say, I think what it was is because when I was a school kid, um, that 92-93 season... Um, Villa were battling United for the first year of the Premier League, so I think yeah. I think I just went event a bit against the grain because all my mates were United fans, you know. So uh, so it has always been like my 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 grandmother, she was from Mayo, so she was Irish, even though she was Scouse, yeah. kind of born and raised. So Ireland, or Liverpool has always had a massive connection with Ireland and Wales. Yes, yeah. Well, my my sort of grandparents and things, um, 
they did a lot of building in Liverpool, built the cathedrals and uh, uh, some notorious buildings and flats which have been knocked down and stuff now. So I don't know, it feels kind of like home from home for me a little bit, you know, in a way, even though I don't sound like I'm from Liverpool or, or anything like that. Yeah, but where yeah, where you spend the majority of your time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, especially socially, you know. Um, I, I always thought it was a great place to go for a long weekend for the football anyway, and uh, have a few beers. Like I think Liverpool is one of those great cities for a night out and stuff. You know, I've uh, I always loved my time going back and forward from there anyway. You know, so it's yeah, um, yeah. Liverpool, Newcastle, very similar vibes. You know, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Um, well, um, can you kind of remember your early kind of days going down to Goodison Park? What kind of era would that have been? Say, like when you first started kind of going to the games and stuff. Yeah, so I was born in 1989. Um, so my first memory of kind of Everton is early 90s, 94, 95. And Everton weren't weren't great at those times. It was um, start of the Premier League era, really. Um, and I first started going to Goodison Park. I was probably seven, eight year old. So it probably about 97, I think my first game was. Um, and we beat Barnsley 4-2 in the Premier League. I remember it quite vividly, actually. Um, and I was kind of awestruck by it. I can remember walking down to Goodison Park and thinking, this looks absolutely huge, you know, and it looks quite small now, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's been a good 25 years of going to Goodison Park. Um, I had a few periods when I was at university and things when it goes much, but uh, the last tw- 25 years, I don't know how many games I've been to at Goodison Park. Um, but the era I sort of grew up with was probably Duncan Ferguson, uh, players like Gary Speed, who was, who was Welsh for me, yeah. Uh, the latter years of Neville Southall, um, just to name a few. And the players we had <laughs> weren't actually great. I mean, young players like Danny Cadamatri, who pretty much plied yeah. his trade really in the lower leagues, but they kind of had the main the main odd season, the one-hit wonder seasons at Everton and Francis Jeffers. And that's, that's my childhood memories. I mean, I mean it's, it's strange because Everton are an ever-present Premier League club. Um but most of the time we've been in the Premier League, we've not we've not been we've not really done very well, really, to be honest. So um, it, it's a strange one because like Aston Villa, your club, who seem to have sort of got relegated, had a few seasons down, and then come back and, and gone above us again. Um, and it's just been it's been a lot of mismanagement, I think, by the club over the over the years, to be honest. <clears throat> You you mentioned that like a ninety five period, and I, I actually like I, I was born in eighty five, so I would have been around nine or ten. And I remember Villa yeah. beat Man United in the Coca Cola Cup in ninety four, the final. And I just, and there's a reason yeah. I remember I remember this because I remember my dad saying to me at the time, "This is significant, you know." And obviously, I didn't grasp how significant it was because at the time, it would have, United would have won the treble that year. And I just remember my dad yeah. saying to me it was significant. And the following year, under Joe Royal, I think it was Paul Wright outscored yeah. you. They beat you, Everton beat United one 0 in the FA Cup final ninety five. I'm pretty sure, wasn't it? And um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I've never like my like my father would be. Like he would have been a tough scouser, like you know what I mean. He wouldn't be one of these lads who massive for emotion, you know what I mean. And uh, yeah, oh, I just remember, I just remember looking at him, and I, it was the first time like, I loved football and stuff, you know. And obviously, I was delighted when Villa beat United and stuff, and you know, I was celebrating more more so because I got to go into school the following day as the <laughs> and supporting the following team, you know. But like, I just kind of grasped I was nine or ten. It meant something on a totally different level to my father the year after '95, them winning the FA Cup, you know. And I, it's it's something that's always stuck with me, and and I remember talking to him about years later, and he was like, he was like, why it meant so much to him that time? And he says, I grew up in the eighties, like I I I was real like he, my dad grew up, I think like in the late sixties, early seventies, born, but like so he would have been 
at a re- good age during the eighties when Liverpool or sorry when Everton were really really good, you know, in the in the mid eighties yeah. and stuff. And he said, um, you know, things happened and you know everything were very good with Lineker and all that kind of thing. And he said there was just such a barren year, and it never looked yeah. like there was barren years. And then he said that ninety five. It was a bit emotional for him because he thought that was going to be the turning screw where Everton were going to start building from there again, you know, from winning that FA Cup. Because that's the time, you know, yourself when F- FA Cups were huge. Like, that was the big, that was the big yeah. thing to win, you know, at the time. And I just don't think they ever kicked on from there again, if you get me. Like, you know, I mean, you're always, you're always kind of stable in the leagues and stuff. But from a winning trophies perspective and stuff, it kind of went a bit stale after that, didn't it? Well, Everton in the late eighties were, were probably one of the most successful teams. Um, the Liverpool. Yeah. yeah, and um, we had the we had probably one of the best squads in in world football at the time. But there was the European ban on um, English teams playing in Europe. And After the high school, I, yeah. I, I think Everton. Yeah, I think Everton uh, probably suffered the most out of that. And then when we went into the Premier League era, Everton were one of the five essentially breakaway clubs who founded the Premier League. Um, so a lot of this talk of the Super League and et cetera, et cetera. Well, Everton essentially did that in the, in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, the, Super, the Premier League was formed. I think it was Everton, Arsenal, Liverpool, maybe Aston Villa. I'm not Villa sure. Villa were involved, yeah. Man, Man United, yeah, Villa, Chelsea Man possibly. United. So there was very few sort of clubs who created this this beast. And, and I think Everton is probably the one club who hasn't done so well from it, really, out of those clubs. Um, and the 1995... FA Cup win is our last trophy at the moment, you know, so um, every time we go to Anfield or we play a, a derby game at Goodison, there's there's always flags from in the Liverpool and lamenting the fact we've not won anything since 1995, so you're sort of reflecting on it being a period where it was significant at the time, and the significance now is almost that how long ago it was, you know, if that makes sense. The same for us, yeah, because we won the league, the Coca-Cola Cup in 94, Everton won the FA Cup in 95, and Villa won the, the Coca-Cola Cup again in 96 when we beat Leeds. And I was a young fella, yeah. and I thought, I thought this is just how it is as a Villa fan, we're going to we're going to see us win stuff. And that was the last thing I've ever seen us win. That was 27 years ago. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I completely understand your pain. And I think Everton and Villa are two clubs that are, they've always been in a kind of a similar kind of size, you know, two family clubs kind of. Yeah. Yeah, so like I think there's uh, there's I think it's the most played game in English football history, isn't it? So, so that's yes, correct. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Everton's pretty much the, uh, the the club who's top of the pile for most consecutive games in the Premier League. But I think Aston Villa are, are probably second or third on that list. So, it basically we've been there the longest essentially um, between us, <laughs> in a way. You know, then right. So we'll move like after after a bit of a period. Like David Moyes came in, and then things really started to look up for a while. I know, I know, I know. Things kind of went up and down a little bit. Where you know you'd have a good yeah. season, and the following season wouldn't be so good. But you were definitely moving in the right direction under David Moyes for a lot of the time. There was definitely more positives than negatives. Yeah, so I think with David Moyes, we he came in, um, and it, we were in a relegation battle, um, and David Moyes kept us up. So I, I suppose there's a, a similarity to the Sean Dyche situation almost at the moment. Everton had been through um, some serious uh, financial troubles, actually, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and Everton were saved, essentially, by uh, Bill Kenwright's consortium. Now, I'm not going to go on to about Bill Kenwright too much, but at the time, he was seen as a bit of a hero or saviour kind of thing. And he brought in David Moyes. And that was the, the most significant thing Bill Kenwright did as a chairman, was bringing David Moyes from Preston North End, who it was seen as a gamble, to be honest, because 
David Moyes had applied his trade in the Championship and they had done quite well with Preston. So in the northwest, but um, nobody really knew anything about him. Um, and he came in, he, he he got the players playing. We didn't have great players at the time. They were, you know, they were probably relegation battle players. Um, and he started sort of adding some quality into there. And he, and he signed some good players, you know, like Thomas Graveson, I don't know if you can remember, sort of Lee Carsley, yeah. um, Mikhail Ateta. And these are kind of players who um, epitomise the Everton sort of dogs of war kind of um uh, style of play, you know, nitty gritty, hard working, maybe not the, the best technically gifted players. And I think that's what David Moyes kind of got with Everton was kind of that if you can get players that give 110%, Evertonians are going to react. The club's going to sort of get behind them. And Goodison Park at Villa Park, they, they can be extremely tough places to go for the best teams in the world if, if they've got the right set of players there, you know. Um, and David Moyes' period, I think, looking back on that period, we had European tours. I've, I've been away with Everton around Europe and, and everything like that. But at times, we did seem to sort of um, prioritise league position over maybe winning a cup or winning trophies such as maybe the League Cup or the FA Cup. Um, and I think the one regret I think David Moyes would probably have looking back on his time at Everton was not winning actual trophy. Yeah, yeah, I, like I, I'd agree with that. I think uh, it's actually something that kind of saddens me a little bit. Um, how how it's now more important to finish in the top six than it is to win a trophy. And I don't think I don't think I'll ever be okay with that. I know the way that football is going, no. and, and the next generation after me will probably be fine with it because that's what they've grown up with. But like I remember waking up on a Saturday morning, nine o'clock in the morning. And you just yeah. sit down and watch BBC till six o'clock that evening. Uh, you watch. It doesn't matter who's playing in those FA Cup finals. You watch it all day. You know, you watch the buses coming to the hotels, picking up the players, doing all the coverage. They have interviews. It used to be a significant day in the calendar. Like it's not anymore. Yeah. The FA Cup. Yeah. And it's and it's a bit sad. And I, I've always been a believer. Like, and I, I, it's never going to happen because obviously the FA and the Premier League are, are kind of almost two different entities now. But I always believed they should have given that fourth spot to the FA Cup winners for the Champions League as opposed to fourth in the league. I've, I've always been yeah. a firm believer of that. And I think that yeah. would absolutely regen, re- rejuvenate that competition. And if, if let's say, a Man City or whatever did win the FA Cup, then then give it to the fourth spot as opposed to the runners-up in the FA Cup, fine. But for for it now to be more rewarded to finish in the top four, even it's going to be top five this year if England fin- if, 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 if the Premier League finished top, the highest coefficient because they're changing the, the, um, the, the Champions rules. League format... Well, yeah. what what kind of like what kind of sport have, have we created where we're finishing fifth or sixth in the league is no more important than winning something? I I just uh, I'm never ever going to be on top of that. So uh, I think what you're saying there is fans and David Moyes' regret. I think definitely, and I think I think that the Premier League and the FA should be ashamed of themselves that they've let the football go like that, where where league cups and FA cups are insignificant, pretty much. They're almost they're almost a, an inconvenience to the Premier League clubs now. Yeah, so the, the, how the Premier League actually works is it is essentially its own private members' club. Yeah. Um, it's not really linked to the FA, essentially. So I think what what actually went wrong was the, the Premier League sort of became its own complete entity, separate to the English Football League, really. Yeah. And even though it is still connected and we still have the four tiers, um, it, it's incompatible, you know, the, the finances and, and whatnot and and we'll talk about the some of the FFP and the financial uh, sustainability rules, but those rules essentially are, are making it uncompetitive as well 
Um, so a club like Man City can essentially, um, they can field perhaps their second team against maybe Everton, for example. Um, a complete 11 change. And they'd still be favourites to win, you know, next week, let's say. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem fair where I think Man City fans would probably acknowledge that Aston Villa, for example, are probably a similar-sized club to Manchester City, traditionally, you know. Um, yeah. We're just not allowed to compete now, and we're sort of hamstrung by these regulations, I think, really, as much as anything. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a good way to bring us on, because, like, obviously, David Moyes got you to a certain place, and and, and then, after that, then, um, let's say, we'll, we'll go forward a little bit to when Farid Mashuri bought you, and Things yeah. things started to look really rosy, Glenn, didn't they? I mean, it was like I'm sure the fan base were very, very happy at the time. Yeah, so Everton's ownership had been saying for many years that they're trying to trying to get the right billionaire owner or the right investor to take Everton forward. Um, a lot of Everton fans questioned why they hadn't been sold previously to you know prospective buyers because. Even Sheikh Mansour walks around the perimeter of Everton's football pitch um, looking to buy an English club and he, he chose Man City um, and the rest is history there. But yeah. the one guy that Everton and Bill Kenwright were happy to uh, to sell to was Farhad Mashiri. He was an Iranian-based uh, British passport holder who has significant ties to, to Russia and the Russian oligarchs. Um, and I think, obviously maybe a bit like Newcastle at the moment, perhaps, you're blinded by the fact that you've got a billionaire owner who's promising X, Y, Z, and they're going to spend huge amounts of money. And he has done. He has spent huge amounts of money. But he's done it recklessly, and it's left us in a, a real bad position, to be honest. Yeah, and 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 obviously we will get on to it, but things kind of... Things kind of went south very quickly, really, didn't it? I mean, like, it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that they were, weren't spending money. Like, the, like he was, as you said, he was putting money in. But there just seemed to be no plan. They were just buying everybody, like, and whoever they could get, they did sign like big amounts of money too being spent. Glenn, like, were, were the fans were the fans starting to get concerned a bit at this point when they seen how much money was being spent and what it was being spent on, or were you just enjoying the ride at this point? Or yeah, so I think in the sort of late two thousand two uh, two tens, we were sort of happy with the signings coming in, and it was quite exciting watching players being signed for forty fifty million pound. Um, but what we didn't understand at the time was was the there was no plan behind all of this. So, you know, when you see some Ro- Wayne Rooney got brought back to Everton in, in the later stages of it, um, Gilfie Sigurdsson was signed from Swansea for fifty million pounds. Um, and I think something that quite epitomises the way Farhad Mashiri sort of run the show was he said that he appointed Ronald Koeman as manager because the ne- the northwest of English football was comparable to Hollywood. And Everton needed a manager who was an A-list name in football. And that was the way he spoke really? about the appointment, which oh, wow. um, it wasn't because he was a good football manager. He'd done OK Southampton, don't get me wrong, but because Ronald Koeman was a big name in football and a, a, almost a A-list kind of celebrity name was why he appointed him as manager. And you know, it, it all went completely wrong. Um, and a lot of people around the club were quite critical of Ronald Koeman saying he, he wanted to spend more time on golf course than he did at training ground and X, Y, Z. But um, we saw some incredible names come to the club. You know, Carlo Ancelotti, you might remember. Um, yeah, see, that was, that was for me, you know, Glenn, I must say, the, the day I seen the announcement, because I'd heard the whispers that they were in for Carlo Ancelotti, and I'm not going to lie, and I mean no disrespect by this, and I, I find it thought similar with Villa with Unai Emery, to be honest. I thought, nah, it's not going to happen. Everything's not going to get Carlo Ancelotti. 
next minute. No. He was there. And I'll be honest now, Glenn, for me, that was the moment that I thought, wow, everything are serious, you know. They, this is, like, that's, Carlo Ancelotti is Carlo Ancelotti, like, do you know what I mean? For yeah. a club everything size, to be able to pull him, I was like, right, the owners are after going in there now and making this man some serious promises. Like, this is, this is, this, it was big, it was huge, you know, it was like, that was a massive pull for you. And I, I just, I thought it was sensational, sensational signing. And I'm sure the fan must have been really welcomed within the fan base, like. Oh yeah, and I think he'll still be looked back on as a as a great manager and a great uh, great person to have at club in for a short period of time. Even though he wasn't the right person for the job at the time, really, you know, with the players he had, it didn't really make much sense appointing a manager like Carlo Ancelotti in many ways. But he was almost he he he's almost the manager that that manager should have been replaced by eventually. Is that what you're kind yeah. of saying? Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. So he's almost the next one. Yeah, we weren't quite ready for Carlo Ancelotti really at the time, and I think Carlo Ancelotti was obviously promised things he, that weren't coming in, in some ways. But I think that was perhaps the last roll of the dice, maybe from uh, the failing Everton new ownership of Fahad Mashiri, because he'd spent so much money on players and um, other managers and things. I think he just thought the best thing I can do here is go for as good a manager as I possibly can get, and I think the the money was probably drying up by this point. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately for Evertonians, the Carlo Ancelotti period was during COVID nineteen, so um, many of his games were, you know, with no fans and no spectators. Unfortunately, um, and uh, it's a it's a very strange period to look back on because we had some real sort of exciting times, but we also had some real poor results. And uh, one that sticks in my mind is when we went to Liverpool in the League Cup and they uh, they played a complete second string and, and we lost. Anfield, and um, this was during this period of huge investment. You know, um, things just weren't going right on the pitch, and it, and and that's why we we've gone through consecutive relegation battles. We've we've paid for it. Um, around that time as well, like Ancelotti had brought in um James uh, Rodriguez, you no, know, and he yeah. had to grow. He had to grow flying. I know things kind of once once Ancelotti left, um, it kind of got a bit bit hairy for him but I actually read an article recently about him and he said that he loved his time at Everton and that he he said he was um he was getting all ready to go into the new season obviously Ancelotti left and he said they signed Benitez and apparently he had had fierce trouble with Benitez in the past at Madrid so he never he never got his footing with with Benitez and he said that he in this interview he did over in the Middle East that he was um or he went in to see um Benitez one day or whatever, and ben- and he said, "Look, is our trouble from the past going to affect my time here at the club? No, no, clean slate, whatever. You put down and you'll get the same chances everyone else." And he said he got no chances. And then one day he was just calling to the office and said, "Look, we're we're looking to move you on." So now, of course, you're only hearing one side of the story there, but I just found it very interesting. Like, had you heard much about that around the time yourselves, or? So yeah, well, um, the period um, Hamas and Rodriguez played for Everton was was kind of that same uh, COVID period essentially. So we, we didn't see much yeah, of him either, yeah. but he was a fantastic footballer and um, a real quality player. And I'm I'm sure he'd probably get into some Evertonian best ever starting eleven Premier League starting elevens and whatnot. Um, and 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 Hamas Rodriguez really did seem to, even though he was sort of a big name at the time, still just below perhaps the Messi's and that of the world at the time playing for Real Madrid. He really did seem to buy into the Everton sort of uh, spirit, and off the field he was saying all the right things. And I don't think anybody expected him to leave the, the following season. But I think um, the appointment of Rafa Benitez was Everton's 
first real sign that there was uh, essentially really big problems at, um, at Everton because I think what Carlo Ancelotti was was kind of the last attempt at the big time and then Benitez was kind of the appointment to come in and start um, saving some money for the club. Um, putting out fires. Removing the big wages, putting out fires um, and what they were wanting was for lower type players to be signed on basically minimal transfer fees such as Damari Gray was it like a free transfer or maybe yeah. we played £1 million for him but you'd gone from James Rodriguez and no disrespect to Damari Gray but Damari Gray probably deserves to be in a team at the bottom of the Premier League and uh, from there on it's kind of snowballed um, the appointment of Rafa Benitez was obviously completely and utterly crazy um, and I don't think anybody will be able to explain why Farhad Mashiri appointed Rafa Benitez other than he was trying to save his own bacon, I think. Yeah, it reminded me so much of the time that um, Villa took Alex McLeish after the season after he relegated Birmingham. It was just, yeah. it was just, it was, uh, I couldn't get my head around it. And and that was the same when Benitez came in. Like, from a tactical point of view, I kind of thought, all right, they're getting someone who's got Newcastle. I, I wasn't looking at him as the the guy who won the leagues of Valencia or the Champions League at Liverpool. I was more looking at what he had done at Newcastle, you know, in the championship. And I thought, you know, he has a bit of experience for slogging out results and stuff like recent results. And I thought, you know, maybe it is. But then I thought, you can't make a signing like that in the situation Everton are in because as soon as anything starts to go wrong, it's going to go toxic very quickly, you know? Yeah, so I think Rafa Benitez was the... um, was was appointed because of how well he'd worked under the tight budget of Mike Ashley at Newcastle for a number of yeah, years. And he, exactly, yeah. He'd ha- happily done so as well. And I think that's what Farhad Mashiri was aiming for, really, with his appointment. He was open just to stay in the Premier League, probably the bottom half, and try and see out this period of um, financial uh, issues that were, were ahead for the club. And obviously, the boardroom and the people in the club obviously knew a lot more about the financial issues than than the fans did, but obviously fans took issue with Benitez over his uh, past time at Liverpool and his comments about Everton Football Club, but under different guises as well, not just whilst he was at Liverpool, he made some quite some, some horrible comments about Everton, saying they were a small club, this, that, that. I think he was Newcastle manager at the time, and, and then he was appointed Everton manager, um, and he, he was appointed <laughs> Everton, yeah, he was appointed Everton manager off, off the back of a terrible spell in China, so Everton fans are saying he's washed up anyway, you know, but why are we giving him a home? You know, I can understand yeah. why. I can, I can like, I definitely understand that. Like, yeah. And a lot of dinosaur managers as well kind of were struggling at the time. Um, I think the football had changed a lot. Benitez had, had sort of operated in that kind of 2000s and early 2000s, but football's changed a lot in that period. And just sitting 10 men behind the box, the Allardyce kind of style football, which Benitez essentially, essentially copies in, in some ways. And it kind of it's kind of started to die off, and we think we've seen it without Allardyce's last few appointments in Premier League. He's, he's not done very well at all. No, it's not worked like it has previous, has it? And and no. and I think he knows that too. He's not he's not putting his foot forward for the jobs like as much as rapidly as he used no. to. You know. And I think as well with Everton, you look at all the different managerial appointments: Koeman, uh, Sam Allardyce, um, Marco Silva was one of the big ones. Uh, Rafa Benitez. They're all completely different styles of play. They all want completely different styles of players, and we've we've got a, a, a squad now full of players from I think it was five different managers in that period. Yeah, all different types of players, all different styles of play, and 
it was a complete shit show, to be honest. So the kind of final straw then for the Everton fans with with that kind of period was Frank Lampard. Like, what's the like? Can can you kind of give us a feeling of what the what, what's the general feeling by the Everton fan base of Frank Lampard? Because one side, I'm sure, like he kept you up at a point when you kind of looked like you're down. The following season, then obviously things just didn't get going at all. Like, what's the what's the kind of respect levels for Lampard amongst the fan base? Is he liked or is he disliked or is it just kind of it didn't work? We moved him on or is there is there dislike there? What's the overall feeling there? It's more probably more of a personal view of this, but I, I think more Everton fans would, would agree with me than disagree. I think Frank Lampard is is liked as a person. He's liked as a, an individual. He's liked as somebody who would probably stick up for Everton Football Club and talk well about Everton Football Club. He handles himself really well, you know, with media duties and off the field. So I think Evertonians like him in, in sort of those aspects. He's respectful. However, I don't, yeah. Yeah. He carries himself think, yeah. Yeah, I don't think Everton fans would say they they respect him as a football coach, um, and and perhaps you know when he first did come into Everton, um, that sort of six months where he kept us up, and there's a few good podcasts in there about that that whole season, um, and I think what Frank Lampard did in that time was he brought the players together, um, and he brought the club and the players together because there was a lot of infighting there. The club had been in fighting between players. The board were fighting with the fans, and all, all I think all Frank Lampard did in those six months was he managed to unify people towards like a common goal of we've got to forget about everything at the minute and stay in the league. And and, and he did that, and, and fair play to him keeping us up. We just about stayed up, by the way. Um, but then when we went into the first main season of Lampard, um, it just seemed like he sort of went from getting results and, and the formations and style of play to get results to his own philosophy and his own wants and needs. Um, we didn't have the players for it, essentially. You know, um, I think Lampard wanted to play 4-3-3. Nice football with um, sort of inverted forwards and a big main striker, a bit like the Mourinho kind of Chelsea days, which he played under. Um, yeah. we, co- we couldn't go toe-to-teams, uh, toe-to-toe with teams like... Like Brighton, for example, and, and that's I think that was one of the final straws for, for Lampard. It was in January before he was sacked and he needed results at this time and his choice was to go at Brighton at home and try and try and match them, you know, foot to foot, playing ball, attack them. And they just ripped us to shreds on the counter-attack and it just looked tactically, looked awful, you know. And, yeah. and I think that was, that probably showed Everton and, and Frank Lampard as, as probably not really the fit at the time, again, and I wish Frank Lampard well, but I do think people like Frank Lampard, Wayne Rooney at the moment at Birmingham City, um, Stephen Gerrard. Really, yeah. They're getting jobs on names, aren't they? I think rather than yeah. um, football and ability. <laughs> I heard um, I heard John Terry on a podcast recently. Is a uh, job John John Obi Mikel's podcast. Yeah, and he they spoke to him and they asked him about because he was doing well as the assistant that coach at Villa, you know, and very well respected from a coaching aspect at Villa, you know, staying behind the scenes. And he said, oh, look, I just I just felt it was the right time for me to go out and get my own um, job, you know. So he said, yeah. I actually applied for two Premier League jobs. He didn't name them now, but he just said, even in the interview, I realised I was way out of my depth, you know. 
So he says, uh, yeah. I, I, I never expect to get these jobs without respect to the club, they're not going to name them, right? So he said, I had a look at the championship. And he thought, you know what? I've played in the championship with Villa. You know, I have a bit more of an idea of this league, you know? So he said, right. So he said, went for that again. The interview didn't go well. Now, I think I heard at the time Bristol City was one of the clubs, but he doesn't name check them in this, right? So he says, I went to the championship. And then he went down to, he said that he went to League One. And he thought, you know, I'm going to have to get a job down here. So he said he'd done in interviews and he said it was around his fifth or sixth interview as a manager. And he said yeah. he'd done really well. You know, he just, you know, he, he felt he was going to get these jobs, you know. Twice he said it happened to him. And he said that uh, he left the interview fairly convinced. Again, he didn't name the clubs, but League One, he thought, yeah, 100%. And uh, he said both times he just got told it was uh, inexperience. He says, no, that's what's coming in. And he obviously didn't directly say about Gerard Lampard, but he's obviously getting at that. And he was yeah. like, he was like, you know, I captained Chelsea for 20 years. Like, he says, I kind of, I understand Premier League and Championship. No, but he said League One, I should be getting an opportunity. Like, and, and it just goes back to what you're saying. Like, like, how is someone like John Terry? Now, I know he probably has a bit of an outside reputation as well. Maybe that, that owners don't want to touch. I don't know. I, I don't, that's not what this podcast is about. But, um, so I don't want to really get into that. But, for you, what yeah. you're saying there is spot on. And you just kind of have to wonder how Gerard and Lampard are getting these top, top jobs and someone like John Terry isn't getting a look in. It's, it's, it's an interesting, like, you know, does it come down to look? Is it just, you know, like, I don't know. So I think um, with Gerard's last move actually to, to Saudi, obviously financially um, motivated also, but I think in a way as well, if he had taken another job, let's say he'd probably be in line for maybe a championship job again now in the situation where he was at. If he'd have failed at that job, a bit like perhaps Rudy's doing at the moment, that would have been the end for him. The end of so what it, he, it was smart for him to go away from the cameras for a while, yeah. Go away for a while, and he probably might come back now to a Premier League job again. You know, with a bit cushier settings and, and whatnot. Maybe a lower sort of Premier League club that's not in danger of relegation battle. And he'll, he'll look okay again. And what he's essentially going to be doing is setting himself up for his dream job, probably Liverpool, I, I would have thought. It, I don't think he'll ever get there. But, um, yeah, I think he's probably been a little bit smarter with that move. But, I don't think anybody would be looking at Lampard at the moment. Would you? Would you think no, I so? Think I think his reputation. I think his reputation is gone, and you could tell in that interview that he it felt he felt it because he said when he took that Chelsea job, he just said he couldn't. The second time after he left Everton and he went back to Chelsea, he was like, "Chelsea are my club. I just couldn't turn it down." And they asked him, "Do you regret going back?" Given the situation at the time, and he goes, "I can't say I regret it because I don't think I could ever turn down those opportunities." Like he's right, it's, like it's very hard to turn down those opportunities in the come. I mean, it's not his fault like that. He's getting the jobs, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, I think one thing with Lampard as well in the time it was at Everton, it wasn't it wasn't a long period, just over a year, I think it was in the end. But the uh, he looked so stressed and almost done well by the end of the the time at Everton and. You do have to understand that I think these people are human, and I know we give them a lot of grief and this, that, and the other. But I really did notice with Lampard. I think it was it was probably good for him to have left at the time as well. To be honest, yeah, yeah. And then and then and then Sean Deutsch came in. So um, I just wanted to ask you, Glenn, right around before we talk too much about uh, Sean Deutsch. As Sean Deutsch is coming in, are you getting any whispers about this FFP that's going on? Obviously, you know the club financially isn't in a great place. Is there any talk of sanctions at this point? Is this is this got how long has this gone on? Like obviously it's been in the mainstream media where we've all heard about it recently what, 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 in the last what, last couple of months. When did you first start kind of getting a sniff that oh, we could be in trouble here? So so what we knew as fans was Everton had been working with the Premier League on um financial matters, essentially. 
um, we were working to essentially a salary cap from 2021-2021. Also, the Premier League was signing off our any transfers made, any contracts offered. So we knew the club were in a financial issue and had financial FFP issues. We, We knew there was an issue. However, what we were told and what we knew was that the club were meeting the requirements of the Premier League and they had done so for a period of up to three years, two or three years, as far as we were aware. Um, And other clubs had complained on a number of occasions that we were spending more than we should have done. I think Leeds United was one of them at uh, at the time. Burnley may have done so. Southampton might have been one. Um, and they were saying it's not fair. Everton should be getting this points deduction, and we were like, "What? What points deduction? You know?" So obviously the clubs must have known what was going on. Everton knew what was going on, but um, Everton were actually working to the Premier League's rules essentially, and the Premier League were di- dictating who we could sign, who we couldn't sign, who we could sell, which players we could offer contracts to, and how long for. Oh really? Um, All right. And this has been ha- this has been happening for two or three seasons now. So we were quite shocked to find, not long after Dice had been appointed, that we were going to be referred to this independent commissioner. I think that was in March we found that out. So it's been sort of, we knew there was something going on, but the truth of it hasn't really come forward until, I would say, March. That was two months after Dice had been appointed. Do you think Dice knew? Yeah. Do you think he took on the club? Do you think they... The club were open to him about what the situation was, or do you think he's been this has all been landed at him? Or no, I think I think Dash will have known there was obviously serious issues with the financial fair play stuff. He certainly will have known about the player trading stuff. Um, but I think the club is genuinely surprised also by the um, by how fierce the Premier League commission has been towards Everton and, and even the Premier League itself. Um, because what I think what Everton and Everton fans can't understand is. We'd worked to the Premier League's financial instructions for a number of years. And then they've turned around all of a sudden and said, well, actually, you need to go in for a commission and an investigation. So why has it been OK for two seasons, you know, essentially? Um, but also, which probably adds to the story quite a lot, is the government in March also in, in, uh, announced they were going to look at um, introducing an independent regulator for the entire English Football League, including the Premier League. And that was a very similar time to this got announced, the independent commission. So I think there's a lot of feeling that is probably uh, very political at the moment. <clears throat> yeah, so like, is the general feeling amongst the Everton fan base is that like that you're almost being made a scapegoat, that they want to show that we can govern ourselves kind of thing? Like, Yeah, so I, I'll, when I, I'll, I'll go through the breakdown in, in a while, um, so you'll probably make more sense. But um, I do believe myself, and from all the stuff we've read, um, there's lots of barristers and lawyers have been publishing things and little little audio tapes and documents um, looking into the commission's findings, and they even mention certain words such as deterrent in our in our uh, case. Which why 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 is that being mentioned? Why 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 is it? Why do we have to be a deterrent for other clubs? You know, um, yeah. and all fingers do essentially point to this government um, independent regulator, which does seem like it's coming in, I think. Um, and a lot of the MPs since since this uh, judgment have actually gone and said, I think DCMS, so Department for Culture, Media and Sport, said a couple of days after the announcement of the points deduction, said, 
this just proves exactly why we need this independent regulator. So um, it could have actually backfired this if that's the intention of the scapegoat thing. Um, but obviously we don't know what's going on in uh, Parliament and Westminster and whatnot. But um, it does seem, it would be very naive to say it's not linked, I think, to be honest. Do you, um, do you want to give us a little breakdown, Glenn, and a bit of a, a timeline and stuff and kind of explain to us where everything's at? So, because it, it is, it is, I know for you it's absolutely real, but it is an interesting choice subject. And I, I want, I'm looking forward to hearing firsthand because, as I said, I've listened to your podcast before and I, I thought it was very interesting the information. So, I'm sure my li- our listeners would love, you know, about the stadium, everything. If you can just give us a, give us a whole kind of rundown on where the whole sanctions are at, please. Yeah. So, um, what I'll do first off, I'll kind of mention this new stadium because obviously that's got a lot to do with um, yeah. with it all, to be honest. So we're, we're, we're still at Goodison Park and it's one of the oldest purpose-built football grounds in the world. Um, and we've been trying to build a new stadium since since I was born, essentially. Um, I'm sure you can, you can remember probably some mock-ups and things that have been done of potential Everton stadiums over the years. Yeah. Um, so Everton are quite close now, actually, to moving into a new iconic stadium on the Bramley Moor docks in Liverpool. Um, it's a 52,000-seater with a potential to rise to 62,000 seats if the um, standing protocols come in, you know, the safe standing. Yeah. Um, the stadium looks amazing. It, it looks absolutely fantastic. It's going to take Everton into a completely different realm financially, you know. So Everton essentially need this new stadium to continue competing in the Premier League due to the financial fair play rules. So if people don't understand the financial fair play and the profit and sustainability rules, they're essentially designed so that a club can only really spend what it generates in income. And they allow a losses up to 105 million over three years. So what the Premier League are saying is Everton have gone over that permitted losses of 105 million. So what I'll do now is I'll, I'll go through kind of a timeline breakdown kind of thing. Perfect, thanks. So, yeah, Everton were on 14 points in the Premier League and we were deducted 10 points. That left us on four points and second bottom in the Premier League. So it turned a pretty promising start to the season for us where we're at at the moment into a relegation battle. Um, This punishment was the biggest punishment in Premier League history ever. Um, And I think one of the, the sticking points for Evertonians is Portsmouth, I think it was in 2009, went into administration and they only got uh, nine points deducted. So essentially, this commission is saying that um, the punishment is is worse. So the breach was worse than going into administration. So yeah, the actual 10-point deduction is for breaching profit and sustainability rules. Um, In March, the club were referred to an independent commission now, I've put a question mark next to independent because the, the independent commission was put together by the league themselves. So it's their own people. So yeah. we call it an independent commission. <laughs> okay. so we'll call it an independent commission for yeah, the, sake of, the it. sake of it. Yeah, yeah but uh, how independent, I'm not sure. Um, and it was for alleged breaches relating to the 21-22 season and the, the cycle of three years up to then. Um. This is the second time such an action has been taken and the only other club that's been hit with a financial fair play charge is Manchester City, who were actually hit with 115 um, charges and that was last season. So let's be clear, that's an ongoing process. So a lot of people are saying, why have they not been punished? Well, 
they are saying they are going to get punished. It's just so big that it can't have happened in the time that Everton's have happened. Okay, um, you'd only one charge, yeah? So, yeah, our Everton's charge was we've had one charge and that's why it's allowed it to be um, resolved in a quicker fashion than Manchester's 115 charges. However, Manchester City have been um, uncooperative and Everton have been cooperative also. So that's a spanner in the works there with the Man City. Um, so the EPL rules state the club can lose up to 105 million over a three-year period. Any club in the Premier League, that is. That's the rules. Though addbacks can be deducted from the figure. And the addbacks were allowed to be COVID-19, stadium building, training facilities and investment in women's club, women's infrastructure or the women's team. They're trying to encourage the uh, WSL, you see. They brought to the WSL, yeah, which is fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, so the Independent Commission said the cycle ended in 2022, Everton had lost £124.5 million. So that was 19.5 million over the 105. So Everton had accepted a breach, but only by a lower figure of 9.7 million. So for give or take a few hundred thousand, Everton are basically saying we lost 10 million less. So Everton are accepting we breached. Yeah. But the, the commission has said that Everton breached by 10 million more, in their opinion. So Everton have said... We also think there was multiple mitigating factors which have contributed to this uh, breach. So the substantial mitigation things were such as the the costly stadium build at Bramley Moor Dock. And some of the controversy around it is how the loans to build the stadium are accounted for. I'll go into that a little bit more in a minute, but it's it's essentially how we've loaned the money to buy the ground uh, and build the ground. So the other mitigating circumstances, COVID-19 effect on player sales, because Everton had planned to sell a number of players during the COVID period and weren't able to. Um, unexpected termination of a key player's contract. So you might remember there was a uh, Everton, pretty much a star Everton player, was accused of something and they yeah. um, they were released by the club. Now, it was actually released, I think, last week that a number of Premier League clubs have been, um, players have been accused of similar incidents and they've kept on playing for the clubs and nothing's been said about it so one of Everton's arguments is we did the right thing and terminated the contract it was worth 10 million pounds to us yeah um, and other clubs have allowed them to remain in the squads and played for them so Everton that's said fair, that's, a fair, that's a fair argument too because like they've clearly like they've like we're not going to obviously name players <coughs> or anything but they're mm. that's a fair argument too because they they've done the right thing there they've written off money like you know Guaranteed money. Yeah, so Everton paid £50 million pounds for that player. Yeah. And Everton said he was worth around £10 million in a transfer fee to them. It had he been sold, even at, even with those charges, they think. So um, he actually wasn't found guilty in the end either, which is a... Oh, I didn't actually know that. So that's interesting. Right, I didn't actually know topic. that. Yeah. But Everton at the time, with the charges and everything, you know, believed they'd done the right thing. Yeah. Um, and Everton, you know, they, were, they keep mentioning that they were transparent, they fully cooperated with the Premier League, unlike other clubs now we know what they're talking about. Manchester City, we believe. Um, and they also say Everton were uniquely affected by the Ukraine war. And this is due to um, funding, you see, because 60% of our sponsorship was related to USM, a company owned by Alicia Usmanov, a Russian oligarch. So Everton cut it all ties with uh, this oligarch as soon as the war kicked off. Due to rules, you know, I think Chelsea was similar with Abramovich. Yeah. Um, 
And he was also funding a naming rights deal for the new stadium, which was supposed to be being paid early in order to help with some of the stadium costs. So this oh, leads into wow. it. That's, that's very interesting. So, so in layman's terms, basically, so they, they, had a, they had a sponsorship to put money up to put on this stadium, like your Emirates, like your whatever. And then the Ukrainian war stopped. They cut ties with this deal. Yeah. Is that correct? And then, so obviously that so, money is not available anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. these people, these uh, Russian people were uh, sponsoring us in different ways. They sponsored the training ground. Yeah. They sponsored our sleeve sponsors. They sponsored um, the kids' kits and things because we couldn't have a betting logo on the kids' kits, so they sponsored those. That's a significant um, so amount for, of sponsorship. That's 60%, I believe, yeah, at huge. the time. So Huge, yeah. That's Everton exactly. have obviously trying to build a new stadium. And they've lost a huge amount of the, the month, the income, essentially. Yeah. So um, what Everton have kind of said is, um, and they, this is a, one of the controversial factors, to be fair, Everton did not use external debt to finance the stadium costs because they had this plan. So Everton haven't gone out and got a loan off a bank to build the stadium. They've instead used the owner's own money and created an Everton stadium-like company um, to build the ground. In turn, this meant Everton had to fund interest and arrangement fee costs through the club's books, essentially. So if Everton had done that, maybe like other clubs have done through a bank and said, look, we're just going to loan the money instead of trying to pay for it ourselves, uh, these breaches may never have happened. Oh, wow. So the, the sticking point, I think, generally, what Everton are saying is we've overspent because of the stadium and the interest payments and things to do with the stadium loans, which essentially come from our own people rather than go into um, banks and things. Because the argument essentially is we'd rather lend off our own people than go to a bank with big interest rates and things. But It's, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, really? Like, I mean, like from where we're up at the moment, like, so basically what I'm getting from that is always like that. You're trying to build a stadium to help you stay within FFP. You're paying yeah. the interest on a loan and that's going against your FFP. Now, that seems yeah. wholeheartedly unfair to me. Like you know, like it's you know that's that's sticking someone in the mud. Like how like if you want <coughs> if you want these clubs to become self sustainable and within FFP and stuff, you've got to allow them to get on with it. It's like it's not like you're, it's not like you're going out pulling fast one. Like you're paying interest in a stadium that you're trying to build to make the club more sustainable. I think as well. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure on all the details, but I believe that would have been allowed if it was the accounts for the season before as well. So then that, that, that had been a, a change of change um, rules during the period also. So it, had it been a season previous, uh, that would have been allowed. Okay. Um, so the commission did not accept the mitigating circumstances. Um, and Everton were also um, forced to sell Richarlison to Tottenham. So Everton and the Premier League had worked together to sell Richarlison to Tottenham uh, in order to stay within the FFP um, rules that set out, you know, when we were under um, embargo. Yeah. So what, 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 how much deal, did you get for him, Glenn? That was six, 60 million? 60 million, yeah. So Everton and Tottenham had agreed 80 million. And now Everton needed the money by a certain date. I think it was the June, July where it changes from season. So Everton had to sell him the last day of June or something similar to that to get the money in the right books. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Daniel Levy at Tottenham obviously knew these factors and he went, we know you need the money, but we don't want to pay eighty million anymore. And they uh, offered sixty instead. So Everton believe 
that due to the sanction and the situation they were put in, they were forced to sell a player under the value that they had agreed. Um, he, he, tried to, he tried to do the very same. Daniel Levy tried to do the very same to Villa the year that we lost the playoff final under Dr. Jai, the, the Chinese owner. And we yeah. got a massive bill. He it turned out he he was in all kinds of trouble with the Chinese government. I, I'm not going to go into it now. Villa were going mm-hmm. under. Um, we got a massive bill from the HMRC, the tax, the, the revenue. Yeah. And yeah. Daniel Levy came in and offered us three million for Jack Relish, knowing that the yeah. club was going under. So, so, so he he's got far. No, I'm not going to hit him for that because his job is to look after his club. But wow, you know that's. It's shrewd business, yeah, but obviously yeah. Daniel Levy is involved with the Premier League. The Premier League know yeah. what's going on. They're forcing yeah. us to do certain things. Yeah. So essentially, yeah. our hand was forced. We, we weren't going to get sixty million off anybody else. We had to find money that day yeah. there, and then he'd obviously dragged out the process. I'd imagine to that last day. Um, you know, there's various different things, and none of these mitigating circumstances were accepted by the league. Um, so Everton's response was Everton are shocked and disappointed. They feel the uh, sanction was wholly unjust and unprecedented. Everton uh, maintain that we acted in good faith and liaised throughout. Um, and, you know, like I think we've mentioned some of this stuff before, but Everton have been working under sanctions since 2001 with a salary cap and deals such as transfers and contracts had to be approached by league officials, approved by league officials. Um, and this, the club says this was not taken into account in the commission either. They did not take that into account. Um, and the commission at the end ruled there was no sporting imperative in the circumstances for Everton. So they were saying there was no advantage you, on the pitch. Yeah, you, you didn't gain any sporting advantage, basically. Yeah, uh, not least when other clubs had, in effect, been able to capitalise on such capital-related expenditure. So they're saying Everton did not have an advantage on the pitch because other clubs were also able to capitalise on such capital-related expenditure. So they're essentially saying other clubs have done the same thing. You know, Um so what what we don't understand now at the moment is are these clubs under investigation? Are these clubs at the moment going to be going through with the same procedures in the future? Who knows? But the point of it that really is they've said it's not a um, sporting advantage, but the punishment we've been given is a sporting sanction. So for all that and all that talk and, and, and however you get to that conclusion that Everton had breached the rules, which Everton, you know, they did, they spent too much money. It on paper, how is a sporting sanction fair? Which, by that I mean, we get a points deduction for um, essentially financial, solely financial issues, which didn't affect how we perform on the pitch. Um, and the commission used the word deterrent. So Everton feel like the club has been used as a scapegoat pol- politically and other clubs have gone unpunished. So Everton have taken the full 14 days they had available to make an appeal I believe they put together a new kind of legal framework and uh, system at the club um, to try and fight this. So they've taken every every moment, every minute they've had to look through the document. Um, yeah. And a appeal was submitted last Friday, which uh, must now conclude within three months. So it will be it will be heard before the end of the season. That's and that's the uh, that's the uh, nutshell, really. That's the uh, that's the explanation. Wow. Um... Can, can I ask you something, Glenn, from like a, a supporter's point of view? Have the club have the club been corresponding much to the to the supporters' trust? Where like have the club been been good like since the sanctions came out? Are they are they relaying information to you? Are they letting you know what's going on, or do you have to find this information yourself? Or have the club what where are Everton coming from? Do they have to remain quiet on the situation? Or 
yeah, it's very difficult. Everton cannot say anything because of it, uh, they don't want to impact the um, the commission or now the appeal. So Everton actually cannot say anything. So what they've done is they put out a video, a short video, um, saying they were surprised, they were uh, disappointed, they're shocked, they're unprecedented. That's all we've got from the club officially because that's all they're allowed to do because they're not allowed to try and affect the appeal. So everything the fans are doing at the moment, the protests, etc., just off the own, off the fans' back because it's our our opinion essentially on on what's happened. But we have been able to read the documents, you know, from the commission. So a lot of legal people and um, some people involved with Everton, some people involved in different areas of sports and the world have been going through these documents and, and sort of working it all out. Um, and I think the biggest thing probably is is that there's been some quite high political figures who've who've sort of um, raised some serious question marks over the whole process, to be honest, and how Everton have been treated um, compared to other clubs. So it is difficult, really, because in, in a couple of years' time, it might look like Everton was just the start of a, a huge clamp down on everyone. But it also feels a bit like we might be the only one that was ever punished, and it was just kind of an attempt to save some political things going against the league. Um, but the, the integrity of the league is, is under serious question now. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Everton have said as well they they um they expect other clubs now to be investigated. So, will we be? <laughs> That's it. You know, and we don't know. You could be there now as an Aston Villa fan. And yeah, I don't you, know Aston Villa's yeah, circumstances. You don't know. Co- you don't know what's coming for any club. No, yeah. That that's that, that's the thing. Like, and it's um, yeah. I mean, it's. It's 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 a worry because, as you said, like one club has 115 charges hanging over them, and you know, you know, it can't just be sorted tomorrow morning because it's 115 charges. But like, where do they take that from now? Because obviously, obviously, you're not too concerned about Man City at the moment because no. what's going on yeah. with Everton. But it is significant for you, like it's 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 huge. And there's one thing I wanted to talk to you about, there, Glenn, in the midst of all this, because you might be able to give me a bit of a. A rundown and, and, and a bit of a breakdown in this because it's something that I find interesting and I find hard to understand. In the midst of all this, the club nearly is getting sold, isn't it? So, how yeah. is that working? So, um, after this period of uncertainty and everything else, and there's been protests, you've probably noticed over a number of years, Everton fans have been asking for the owner uh, to sell, essentially now. Um, and we have been un- un- undergoing uh, takeover talks for around about maybe sort of 12 months now, probably. And the people who are in pole position to buy the club are a group called Seven Seven Partners. Now they are a multi-club um, organisation who um, own a few other clubs around Europe. So they own Hertha Berlin, Genoa. They have shares in Sevilla, and essentially their model is to kind of share share players around their clubs, essentially. Yeah. But there's serious financial issues at just about all of those clubs that they, they actually own at the minute. So um, we're actually going through the fit and proper conduct um, assessment at the minute with the Premier League to, to buy the club for these people. So it's going to be really interesting uh, if Very interesting. Premier League um, ratify and, and approve these people, even though we know they've, they're essentially got serious money issues all over the football world. Um, are the club going to say, are the league going to say, yeah, go on? Get yourself in there. We've just fined the club loads of money for financial issues, but we know you've got loads of financial issues. You, you get yourselves in there and take them over. So um, you couldn't, you couldn't make it Keith, up, really, could you? No, I think Keith Keith Weiner said. I don't know if he's he's actually Aston Villa. He was yeah, Aston Villa. He was, yeah, yeah. He's actually said that there are a number of parties waiting and they're expecting it to fail. 
um, and they are hoping to take Everton for a reduced rate now. So um, we don't know who they would be, but it does seem like they might fail on the fit and proper conduct stuff. Um, but Everton's owner has said he doesn't. I think I think what we have to understand is the Russian war is a big thing. The um, the owner essentially seems like he was possibly a, a front for maybe a, a Russian ownership of the club. Um, so Everton weren't technically owned by a Russian like Chelsea were with Abramovich, but a lot of people see him as a bit of a puppet perhaps for maybe what was Russian ownership really of Everton. Yeah. Um, and obviously when the Ukraine war started in February, was it last year? Um, I think that put a real dent into the, the whole the whole plan for Everton and the new stadium and the finances and everything. So um, we really do need a decent takeover, but you know how 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 good that's going to be for the club. We don't know because we've we've been burnt now with what we thought was a decent takeover, and and going forward, we've got to hope we get some decent people in, and they're all in to make money for themselves, aren't they? At the end of the day. Oh, the game's gone, mate. Like I mean, like for me, like. I have to say, like, like we had a disaster with that Chinese owner. He really gambled with the club, put everything on us, getting promoted, and we failed to do so. And we were going, we we're in big trouble. And like, I can't, I can't complain anything. I, I, can't, I don't know what's going to happen in ten years. I can't complain about our owners, like our new owners. They've, they seem to be, they seem to be doing all the right things. They're putting a lot of money into the academy. They're putting, you know, they're buying other clubs around the world and getting link ups between Vissel Kobe in Japan and. Um, Viteri yeah. Gimeras in Portugal they seem to be doing all the right things and they're, 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 they're two very successful men and, and, and I think Wes Edens the American owner he just shows he says look look what I've done with the Milwaukee Bucks in America I took them from nowhere to winning the NBA you know so yeah. but again like I'm happy with these owners but like money's all about football like they're not they're not doing this to have a bit of fun like you know I think I think that yeah. you know like they're they're obviously trying to build a an asset for themselves too so you don't know how long they're going to stay around and stuff so for us to start off with a good owner and not know where it's going to go starting off with a bad owner is really really bad you know what I mean like so yeah I, I just like you know as I said look I come from a family of Everton fans like uh, Everton or a club I've always kind of had close to my heart you know I've been in Goodison Park many times and every second yeah. person on my, my dad said the family are Scousers you know Evertonians like so I want to see them do well, you know, they're a club, they're a Premier League club, but you just kind of look and think the stadium, it has to happen, but you need yeah. to be in the Premier League for it to be like, there's no point in having a 52,000 seater stadium if you're only getting 35,000 into it, you know, like it's, yeah. and, and what's the general feeling around the club around the relegation side of things? Is there, is there a kind of a siege mentality in the club now? You know, like, because Sean Deutsch is obviously saying to his players, now you've got to go out there. You've got to forget what's happening behind the scenes. You know, you've got to keep this club up. Like, they, everyone wants it. They're, 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 you go on a good run, they take those points away from you. Like, go out and show how good you are. I mean, his team talks can do themselves. And do you think there's enough characters in the dressing room to for mission complete? Yeah, I think, um, I think now... We've talked about a real negative thing, you know, with the appeal, with uh, with everything the commission has done and the uh, Premier League and everything. But actually, it does actually feel. I was at Nottingham Forest on on uh, Saturday. It does feel quite positive am- among the fans. Um, they're obviously voicing the discontent with the Premier League and, and whatnot. But I think everyone feels like we've had a, a decent start to the season with the squad we've got. Um, we're starting to get wins on the road. I think all the last season we won three three away games, um, and Dice was only in for you know the back end of the season and I think we've won four 
four or five away games this season already. And the form at Goodison is not so good. So we are getting better results just anyway. Um, the teams in the league are pretty poor down the bottom this season. So you've got uh, Burnley, Sheffield United, Luton Town, who are all pretty poor. And then you've perhaps got a few teams just above them, like Bournemouth, Wolverhampton, perhaps, who would probably be normally relegation battle inside. So, Forest are struggling. Forest were really poor on, on Saturday, yeah. So I would be very surprised, even with this points deduction, if Everton are below all these clubs. I, I, I can't see it, to be honest. Um, the, the thing we, we're a little bit concerned about is we could have done with a few more bodies in, in January. And then we don't know how this appeal process um, affects signing players now. You know, are we still under some... But we don't actually know. Nobody knows that. So it'll be interesting to see if Everton can just get some bodies in, you know, just to just for injuries and whatnot. Um, but I, I think I think we've got a good chance of staying up. It's, it's important to mention perhaps that um, the new accounts have to be in by December. And they've said that anybody who's um, breaching on their, those accounts would get a point deduction this season. So, you know, Everton fans are hoping that doesn't mean another points deduction this season. But, you know, that could be the same for other clubs as also. It's not just Everton that. Um, so we, we sort of, all we can do as a club, as a, a set of players and, and Sean Dash, he's, he's got to say, look, it's us against the world. We've got to go out there and get as many points as we can and, at the end of the season, if Everton are relegated because we've been deducted all these points and and, and everything like that, the club and the fan base is just going to have to say, well, it would have been impossible for us to stay up, I think. But I think the the fans and the club have sort of united behind this now because we, we, we were still fragmented, the fans and the owners and the board and things. Even though they have changed a little bit, I think we have seen that kind of unity come back together now. So, I'm hoping that will probably help towards leading towards better better results at Goodison because we've got pretty poor results at Goodison so far this season. So um, we've got a good away win at Nottingham Forest on Sunday. A couple of injury issues, but we're playing Newcastle at home on Thursday. So Everton fans are going to be looking towards playing a really good team at home on on Thursday night, trying to make it difficult for them. And let's just say we get a a one nil win or something like that. I think everyone would would feel really good about the situation. Um, I think we just have to hope we have to um, make sure we keep up vocally about the the, uh, the the breaches because if we if we let it slide, the media won't keep it up. You know the uh, protests and things like that. So no. um, even if we do sort of do okay, I think we've just got to make sure we're there in background, making making a bit of a stink uh, at least until this appeal's um, concluded anyway. Because but it's not good for the Premier League having all these protests and whatnot because um, it's shining a light essentially on what. Perhaps is a bit of a an iffy setup, shall we say? I don't want to. I don't want to accuse anyone of everything. But, no, um, I know, I yeah. know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and it's probably bringing a bit of unwanted attention. Like, yeah. Um. So I don't want to keep you too much, Glenn, too much longer, Glenn, because you've given me a lot of your time already. But one thing I did want to kind of ask you before you went there. Obviously, this is pure opinion, and you can just only give us your opinion because you don't, you, you can't see into the future. But with the appeal, all that. What would be a, what would what would be a satisfactory outcome for you? Obviously, everyone would say, "Oh, well, the ten points get overturned and we're back to where we were." But realistically, as a fan base, what what would be a what would be a satisfactory outcome at the end of this with the appeal and this Man City situation and stuff? What where what would make you feel justified in your appeal and what kind of do you turn around? Would you be ha- would you take the, would you take four points? Would you take six if you kind of get what I'm at? Like, what what would be satisfactory yeah. to you? Yeah. So. 
first and foremost, Everton fans, with the new stadium next season, we have to be in the Premier League, don't we? That, that's what yeah. we need. Um, no question. So what would be satisfactory from the appeal? Um, I think it's very difficult, actually, because we don't actually know how they've come to 10 points. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's, that is a mysterious um, kind of issue with the whole thing also. Um, it's an interesting so, figure, though. It is an interesting figure, like 10 points, because um, it was actually on your podcast that I was listening to that, and I remember you discussing how Portsmouth got nine points, yet people lost their jobs and everything. And I think, yeah. was it... Oh, from, if my memory serves, was Middlebury the other team that got sanctioned for not feeling a team, wasn't it? I actually remember that back in the time. They, they, yes, was so, it, it was Middlesbrough, wasn't it? They're the only other team that got a sanction. Was it Middlesbrough yes, or Mid- Portsmouth? Middlesbrough were really harsh. I think it was in the maybe ninety, maybe it was around ninety-five. Actually, it was yeah. early nineties anyway. Um, and they had had a some kind of virus or something had gone through the squad, and yeah. they were unable to feel the side um, for one fixture, I believe. And yeah, they no. were. They were deducted three points, Middlesbrough, and it, it, it eventually relegated them. I think they had all these players like Ravinelli in that at that time. You know, they'd spent Canino and Ravinelli, Canino. yeah, one of the best teams that everyone down. Was that the same yeah. season they got the, the deducted points? Was league it? Cup. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I think they were in the League Cup final as well, were they? Or the FA Cup final? It's Chelsea, um, and it no, it, was, it, it perhaps was a bit later than ninety-five, but it was around that time. Around anyway, ninety-eight, I think. Yeah, around ninety-eight. Yeah. Yeah, um, they got relegated, yeah. Um, and that's probably one of the harshest ever um, sanctions on a team because they, they essentially had um, fitness and health issues, <laughs> um, yeah. I think. Um, and then also 2000s was the Portsmouth one. And Portsmouth essentially had hundreds of millions of pounds of debt. They had um, unpaid transfer fees to other clubs, which they never got. Um, they sacked the staff, um, the people within the club I think yeah, players they, and that went unpaid the club was a mess uh, at the time yeah complete mess yeah it, it was bad ownership 100% not something against Portsmouth at all um, oh 100% uh, yeah and, and I think their fans done very well to raise funds between them and it's uh, it's a podcast we're going. going to do it on the line yeah so the yeah 100% so yeah I got, mean um, so it was nine points they got was it that time yeah they got nine points so um so for Everton to have one charge for essentially financial issues relating to non-playing issues, it just seems completely and utterly um, unprecedented, uh, scandalous, really. Um, and I think that's where you come back to this uh, scapegoat issue of how did they come to ten points? Because it just does it is it because it looks good on the back of a newspaper? You know, is that yeah. is that why? Um, See, for me, I said you and that voice note that I sent in there. I like. I think it's very harsh on the fans. And now I know the Premier League will go, well, yeah, this is a sanction on the team. But when you're taking points away, you're taking the points away from the fans. You know, like it's you're taking it away from the players. You're taking it away from like Sean Deutsch and his players and your fans. You know, the people who aren't even making these money decisions. Like, you know, it's... Yeah, Everton like, Fans Forum have said, uh, this is the supporters forum, they've said they would like an input into the appeal just to give the Everton fans perspective. Yeah, I think they've been turned really? back. But um, uh, yeah, it, I know these appeal structures and that are obviously quite, you know, they've got to be very secretive and things. So I could, I could perhaps understand that. But um, the, the interesting thing also during the commission period where they were investigating was the um, Premier League had suggested that they use the EFL structure to um, award a points deduction. So the EFL has strict um, points per issue kind of. So if you breach a certain issue, you get a certain amount of points. So 
they had recommended to the commission that they use this certain um, structure to award Everton's uh, points. But this was during the commission had already started beginning its um, investigation. So they were unable to say, yes, we'll use that, because then Everton would have gone, well, you've just made it up as you've gone along. Yeah. So they said, we can't use that structure, sorry. But they've then gone and given an identical sanction to what that structure would have said um, had the points been added up. So what it seems like they have done is that we can't use that. And then <laughs> they've gone and used it without perhaps actually saying they've used it, which um, Andy Burnham, mayor of Manchester, has, has come out quite strongly against. He's, he's essentially saying it, it does seem like they've, they've made it up as they've gone along, essentially, with the how they've got to 10 points, essentially. Um, but like, what would be a satisfactory um, appeal? I think Everton would probably... You know, maybe if we got down to five or six points deducted, um, that would probably give us a little bit of breathing space in, in the relegation battle, I, I presume. But there's no kind of rhetoric behind why we deserve to have a six-point deduction. I, 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 I personally don't think we deserve any points deduction. But I think the club's just going to be um, aiming towards getting that number down, I think. And the club did admit we had breached the actual rules because we'd spent too much money, you know. Yeah, got to, yeah. Got to say that they, they, they admitted guilt. <laughs> they weren't like the club weren't trying to hoodwink anybody. Like they admitted their guilt, and 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 and, and you know, like I think I think you would agree. I agree. There there should be some kind of punishment. There are these rules or pointers being in place, but it's the yeah. severity of the punishment that's really you're 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 playing with a club's future. You know, like yes, yeah. like the like this could have far far reaching impacts. Like and and would a cha- would a transfer embargo be a bit more fairer? You know, do they continue with the Premier League having to run the rule of their transfers, whatever? Taking ten points off someone is really, really running the risk of ten points, and and you kind of have to say, I don't know, I, I don't know if Man City are going to be looked at this year. It could take ten years. I don't, I don't know. Like one hundred and fifteen is a lot of charges to one cycle through, and even harder to prove. You know, but to make them stick, but let's say, let's say they make ten stick, then it has to be mm-hmm. twenty, twenty-five points, doesn't it? Like you know, it's just yeah. They've really backed themselves into a corner now, and if nothing comes of it, they're going to lose any credibility that they had the Premier League. Yeah. So, what what we do need as a league, as a competition, is we need a set a set list of rules and sanctions. And if it's going to be points deductions, you need to have rules pertaining to the points deduction. So, if you break a certain rule, you would get a certain points deduction, and everyone knows where they stand. And there's clarity. Have... There's clarity from the start of every season. Everybody knows, and then if you break that rule, you've no problem. Like you know, you can't you can't whinge about it because you knew from the start kind of thing. Like, and then it's fair, isn't it? I would say. Um, but how how could you implement that now? Because Man City have got an ongoing uh, investigation. Chelsea have got an ongoing investigation. Um, Newcastle are being investigated for their ownership, you know, with being a state. Yeah. So, could you do that now? Because all them clubs are going to go, well, you've done that after announcing our investigation. So, yeah. you, you end up getting into a tangle, don't you? <laughs> like, as in, you know, yeah. like, especially for as they seem to be making it up as they go along anyway, there you, yeah. you start tangling yourself with four different situations or four different clubs, it's just going to end up a mess. But listen, how do you think it looks then as a, a, a from a, an outsider? Um, have you got a just a generic kind of feeler. Do you think it's harsh or do you think? Oh, I, I think it's harsh. Like, I think 10 points for one charge. Um, 
I think it's very harsh when when I see what's going on with every club. Does every club in Europe is breaking rules in some level, and I don't yeah. care. There's there's no one's going to convince me that not every club is doing fast stuff like, you know, doing stuff under the table. I think that's business. It's not just football. It's every industry in the world. You know, people are pulling tricks to make their club better and make themselves more sustainable. Like I'm sure Villa's owners are doing stuff that are, are that we don't know about Manchester United. We know Man City are, you know, with the with, with Emirates are with the Ahead Airways sponsoring their training ground and their stadiums and stuff. We know that. So there's no club that's going to come out of this looking like thinking that their the muck's not going to stick. If if a club, if, I'm sure if the Premier League go after every club, they'll find something on every one of them if if if, they, if they're serious about it, you know. If they wanted to, <laughs> if they want, if they want to, well, the Glenn, that's the difference. If they want to, because for me, I kind of feel. UEFA took Man City to court, totally different case, and lost. They actually won the case, but then it went to the sport of arbitration, and Man City got it off in a technicality that some yeah. some time frame had run past. So UEFA, so they never did the sport of arbitration. Never said that it wasn't true. They said that yeah. on it. So they actually got off in a technicality. So it kind of seems to me, are the Premier League going after almost it's an easy target? If you get me. You know, just some someone that's like, oh, Everton, right, we'll, we'll take points off them. They're kind of down, they're down the pyramid at the moment anyway. Um, yeah. It's not going to matter to us. Man City have become our global reach. We, we, they yeah. need Man they need Man City. And that's no disrespect to, to Everton or Villa or anything. But at the moment, on a global scale, we obviously have bigger fan bases, but they've got, they're bigger globally at the moment because they're winning stuff. And, you know, like the Middle East. Martin Samuel. In the Times, I think he perhaps put it quite well. I think he, I think it was him who said this. I might be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think he had said that Everton were the biggest fish they could fry without any sort of splash back from the frying pan. Essentially, you know, um, yeah, yeah, they were kind of a big enough name to um, to make it look like they were doing stuff correctly when perhaps we know they're not really. Essentially, Glenn, um, thanks a million for coming on and, and and giving us a good breakdown and giving us a bit of clarity on what's going on with it and. Um, I hope you, you'll come back on the podcast with me in a few months again and kind of give us a bit of an update of where we're at after the appeal and stuff. Like, I'd, re- I'd really appreciate it if you'd come back on again. Yeah, so it's uh, obviously it's a mo- fast-moving situation this all the time. So um, I'm sure in a three or four months' time, we'll, we'll have a lot more clarity on, on, on this information again, plus the appeals process. And how Everton are doing on the pitch will probably determine how we feel really about it because end of the day, we're football fans and we want to do well on the pitch, don't we? So... If Everton are in some decent security by then, we, we might not feel too harsh. But that's a That's a very good point to make. Like it's at the moment, this situation, those ten points really matter to you. So yeah, and I, I, it's still going to hurt. But if you go in, win five, six games on the trot now, and things are looking a bit rosier, you you can get back to enjoying your football because essentially that's what football fans want. That's what you want football fans to want to enjoy their football, you know. Yeah, so we've been punished for supporting our club and supporting Everton and, and essentially our punishment is unfair because we just want Everton to do well. We just want our points to be on the board. If we won a game, we want to we want to have three points yeah. on the board. So it would be nice yet to come back on in a few months and uh, hopefully we've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, absolutely, well. mate. Thanks a million for your time, Glenn. And um, I'll talk to you again, mate. Take care. Thank you. Uh, good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Yes. Cheers.
I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Please hit the follow button on Apple and Spotify to help the podcast grow. And if you could share the podcast with me to help me get it out there, that would be much appreciated. If you're on Twitter, give me a follow. It can be found under Spud Talks Football. Thanks for listening.